in our church family right now that's one of the best things that's happening is Friendspeak. If you're not involved in Friendspeak and you're interested in talking to other people about Jesus, if you're interested in having other people who don't know the Bible, who haven't read Scripture before, read Scripture together with you, then I encourage you... Excuse me, I'm sorry. I really encourage you to take opportunity to sign up for Friendspeak and to participate in the training session that's taking place next Saturday. October 24th, next Saturday, I think it starts at 9 a.m. Maybe it's at 8.30. It's, it's the first major announcement in your bulletin. You can look at that. And there will be an opportunity for you to sign up for that even today. And so there'll be a table in the foyer. You can go out there. You will find a couple of booklets that talk about uh, the Gospel of Luke and give an example of what Friends Speak is all about. I think Dana Rippenhagen is going to be out there ready to sign you up. And so don't think to yourself, I can't do this. You can do this. And I encourage you to take that seriously and take opportunity to be involved with Friends Speak. And we're going to continue to communicate to people, especially who are immigrants to Canada and maybe who haven't experienced Christianity before, something of scripture as they at the same time are learning. Thanks, Mark. As they're learning something about uh, the scriptures and about Jesus in the course of it all. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Joshua. It's page 155 in the, in the Pew Bibles. We're going to read a portion of that in just a second. I wanted to tell you, though, how encouraged I was by the men's retreat, just what I experienced uh, you know, just in the last couple of days. What I found, and I guess I always find this, but what I found again is the seriousness with which some of the men in our church are obviously taking their faith. And I'm not saying that we don't all. You know, you don't have to go to the men's retreat, obviously, to take your faith seriously. But I did find that the guys who were there were taking their faith seriously. And I was especially encouraged, I have to admit, by James Mooney. James was the one who was really responsible for the retreat more than anybody else. He chose as a subject putting on the armor of God, which I thought was a, a wonderful choice and wonderful because it's necessary for every Christian and certainly all the guys that are up there to put on the armor of God. And so we went through and we talked about the armor and what each piece meant. We talked about the, really the, the elements of the spirit working within us through each of these elements of the armor to make us what God needs us to be. And the theme of kind of being what God wants us to be, both as individuals and as a church, is not only at the retreat, of course, but it's here as well. The story that Mark talked about a moment ago and that we're going through at this time of the year is really all about becoming what God wants us to be. And in fact, you can encapsulate the story like this. The story is God creates people. He wants them to be a certain kind of people. They're not that. And so they're constantly rebelling and not being what God wants them to be. And then he finally has to do something in order to reconcile them to himself. And of course, what he does is he sends Jesus in order to bring them back to himself. Well, we jump in kind of in the middle of the story today, but we jump in at a great point. And I want you to look with me at Joshua chapter 6 to begin with. And you know, stories have beginnings and stories have endings. And of course, stories have middles. Today, I'm going to start at the end 
of a certain segment of the story, and I'm going to work backwards a bit toward the beginning. And we'll see, I think there are some wonderful things that go on as we work backward in this story. Look at chapter 6, verse 20. Here's the end. When the trumpets sounded, the people shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord. And if you look up here at our banner, you'll see that this picture on the lower left depicts this story. It depicts the crashing down of the walls, which really is the end of a long series of events that ends with the fall of the city of Jericho. Now, in one sense, that's just the beginning of the story because this is the first city that they take in the new land. But it's also the end of a long story of events that takes us here. The next part of this, as we move backward, is in Joshua chapter 3. I want you to go to Joshua chapter 3, verse 14. And here, they're just getting ready to go into the land. So it says in verse 14, So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, see if this doesn't sound a bit familiar, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry land. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell, tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you're to stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men, and he had appointed from uh, the Israelites, one from each tribe, and he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each one of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Well, that story fairly reminiscent, actually, of the parting of the Red Sea and the Israelites walking across on dry ground and the Egyptian armies being smothered. The story kind of sounds the same. And it is. It's a crossing again. This time a different crossing later in the story. But God definitely doing something as he takes them into a new land and a wonderful land. Well, what is it that makes this crossing... And in fact, the destruction of the city of Jericho, even possible. Well, it's earlier events in the story. So I want you to turn back further. I want you to go to Numbers chapter 13. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, 
Numbers. You can find it. Fourth book in the Old Testament. And I want you to look at Numbers 13, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to skip around here or jump some, but you can follow with me. Verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. So he chooses 12 guys. He actually names the 12 in the next few verses. And they are to go into the land and to spy this out as God is leading them toward this land. Look at verse 16. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hosea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. When Moses sent them out to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak or few or many. What kind of land do they live in? And he's got some pretty specific instructions that he wants them to kind of follow as they, as they go about this. Okay? Now, I want you to look at Numbers chapter 13, verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land into which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, giants. The Amalekites live there in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Now, I want you to skip verse 30. We're going to go back there in just a second, but look at verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from Nephilim, from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And so this is not a positive report. And if you just think for a moment about what's going to come, about how later on the cities of of Jericho, the walls of Jericho are going to fall down, the, the river is going to part and people are going to cross, there's going to be a memorial set up. At first glance, you look at this and say, what is going on? People don't sound like they're going to be there at all later on. And of course, there's an awful lot that has to go on. Has to be some wandering, for instance. So what is it that changed? How is it that the people go from, in chapter 13 of Numbers, giving a horrible report where it looks like they can't possibly do what it is that God wants them to do to the point where later on in the story we find them actually crossing a river again with the walls of water standing and with them blowing trumpets and going around a city and the walls fall down. How do we go from A to B when it sounds like A is so bad? And I want to show you because this is so crucial. Many of you know the answer, but this is just so important for us to see. Now I want you to go back to verse 30. Look at verse 30 in Numbers 13. 
Because the report that comes back to the people from the spies is not unanimous. Verse 30 says, Then Caleb silenced the people. That's an interesting line. They were all griping. They're all grumbling. This isn't going to work. And Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. That is an amazing line. Everyone else sees trouble. Caleb sees not trouble, but opportunity. Caleb actually views this whole scenario in light of what God has already done. Caleb has a memory. And Caleb is thinking to himself, I have seen the waters part. I have heard and seen the angel of the Lord pass over the doorposts and none of the Israelite firstborn were killed, but all of the firstborn of Egypt were killed. And we all came out. And we would not have been able to come out if it hadn't been for God working among us. Caleb has a great memory and an accurate memory of what God does. I want you to look at verse 5 in chapter 14. Well, and and I should mention again, by the way, that the people continued to grumble. Verse 2 says, All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole assembly said, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Now these guys are going to take us into a land with giants. And we can't possibly make it out of there. And so it would be way better for us if we would just go back into slavery, back into Egypt, and just stay there. Remain Not just where we are, but in even a worse place. At least we would then be in some way protected. But these guys, they're just going to take us into trouble. Verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes And said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Now the fact is, it's a long story. From here to the falling of the walls of Jericho. There's a lot that must go on. But in one sense, the battle and its victory has already begun. Like, it starts here. It starts when Caleb and when Joshua and then when Moses and Aaron, who believe them, when they say, we can do this. Look at how simply Caleb states this again in verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. 
You don't even hear him making an argument. Like he doesn't give all the reasons why. And to him, I think it's because it's so obvious. Caleb totally gets it. Of course we can do this. How could anybody possibly think otherwise than that we are absolutely capable of doing this because of God being with us? And that's the whole key. That's where it all starts. I want you to notice, by the way, look back at verse 13, or chapter 13, uh, verse 1, when it says, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe. Send one of its leaders. So he chooses twelve, one from each tribe. Why does God do that? And when I say, why does God do that, what I mean is, does he not know the outcome? Does he not get this? Does God not understand that there are going to be ten who come back and who will say, this is never going to work. This can't possibly work. Does God not know that? Is he clueless about the future? He couldn't see this coming? Well, of course he could. God knows that he's going to send 12 and 10 of them are going to come back and say this isn't going to work. But God is caught up in the faith of the two. God is caught up in what God's people can do when 20% of them or less in this case, are willing to do what God wants them to do. You know, we sometimes talk about how in the church, 80% of the people don't do as much as the 20%. 20% do all the work and 80% don't. And you think, how could a church possibly function like that? And I agree that it must limp along a bit. There's a small percentage of people who give most of the money to a church's effort. The vast majority of people don't give near as much. But God, nonetheless, even though every church I can think of is like that, ends up using that percentage and does great things with it. In this case, two out of 12, and God is going to end up doing something incredible with that because God doesn't ultimately need even the two. What God needs is just a small number of people who will say, I am going to trust in him. He is capable of doing this. And so I don't know how many of you that are here today would be thinking to yourself, absolutely, we can do this in the Lord. And how many of us would say, uh, I'm not sure. You know, our world's kind of uh, opposed to Christianity these days. You know, we live in an economic climate and a time which is, doesn't seem to be all that good for the church. Our contribution's going down because people are losing their jobs, etc., etc. Do we really think that the future of the church depends on things like our economic factors? Do we really think that God isn't capable of taking a handful of people like ourselves with our limitations, with our inabilities, and not do something wonderful with us? Of course he can. And we're limited not by the economics of our situation or our time. We're not limited by our gifts and abilities. 
We're simply limited by our vision. We're limited by what God Himself needs to do and that we need to have a vision for. And there are no limits with that. When we capture what God wants to achieve through us and we trust Him in the process, there's simply nothing that can stop us. And so the issue comes down to, it always comes down to the heart. And we're, I think we're in a kind of an interesting time in our church with respect to this. You know, I think we enjoy coming together as a church. I think we do some great things for the Lord as a church. But I don't know any of us who are totally satisfied with what we get accomplished in our ministry. Like, I think if I ask the majority of you, do you feel good about being part of our church? Do you enjoy this experience? I think almost 100% would say, yeah, I, I enjoy this experience. If you didn't, you wouldn't be here. But if I ask you, are we getting done all the things that we want to get done? I think most of you would say, no, what we need is the faith of a Caleb. The faith of a Joshua. Then God can do something incredible among us. And I would absolutely agree. You know, in in North America, like we have a group of churches called the Restoration Movement, of which we're part. And in North America, there are about... 30 churches or so of 10,000 or more in their Sunday morning attendance among the restoration movement. Now, there are, I don't know, 40,000 of our churches in North America. There are a handful of those who have, it would seem, done a great job in ministry and who continue to really move forward, achieving a kind of success that in one sense every church would like to achieve. And I wonder if the key to that is not so much that they have hit on some magical method. Because the fact is, if you went to those ten and asked them how they did it, they would all have done it differently in their circumstances. If you go to the next tier of that, say churches that are 2,000 to to 8,000 or something, you ask them how they did it. And if there's 30 of those, then they've all done it differently. You could go to the very successful church of 500 in its community and you could ask, how did you do this? And they would all have different answers about how they did that. But there is one thing they would all have in common. What they would have in common is the faith of a Caleb or the faith of a Joshua who would say that it doesn't matter what giants we have to confront. And it doesn't matter the ways that we have to go around to get there. What matters is that we have that kind of faith. We should go up and take possession of the land. For we can certainly do it, Caleb says. And that's exciting to me. Very exciting. We have some strategizing to do. We have some plans to make. We need to cast some vision for ministry. We need to build on what we've done already in terms of vision and how we go about doing ministry. But what we need more than anything else is the faith faith of a Caleb. 
and to say, we can certainly do this. Lord, be with us as we do. If you look at the order of assembly, you're going to find that the title of today's sermon is Far Beyond Jericho. And the reason for that is because stories stretch in different directions. And I took you at the beginning here to the end in one sense of a story, the end of the people preparing to go into the land where they finally take the first city. But of course, that's not really the end. The story is just beginning there of them beginning to take the land. And they take the southern kingdoms and they take the northern kingdoms and the land eventually becomes theirs as the story goes forward and stretches out. And then, of course, the story continues. And ultimately, the story continues with a new people of God as Jesus comes and creates the church. And I think the question for the morning is, where does the story go from there? And what part are we going to play? At one point, someone kind of began this story and despite the opposition of others said, we should go in and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. And my question would be, are we able still to think in that way? Can we still say to ourselves, this God is still with us? And we can certainly do it. Caleb and Joshua had that kind of faith. And I would pray today that you and I would be Joshua's and Caleb's and have that kind of confidence in God and that we would watch what he does when we trust him with all our hearts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we find ourselves in a completely different kind of situation in one sense than Joshua and Caleb. And that difference is you and the presence of your spirit. And so the positive perception that Caleb and Joshua had based God on what you had done already in your people Israel, that should be geometrically enhanced in us. Our, our perception should be even greater because we've seen not just what you did in bringing a people out of Egypt, but bringing a whole world to you through the cross of Jesus. And God, I would pray that the vision of, of what Jesus has done and what you're capable of doing would carry us and lead us and cause us to say, we can take possession of this land. Help us to have that kind of faith. And, and Father, as we continue to plan and, and move forward in our ministry here, I pray that you'd give especially every one of our leaders this kind of vision and hope for what it is that you want to work among us. Help us to absolutely trust in you. We pray these things through Jesus. Amen.